Welcome to PB Link Stories. We explore the stories and uncover the business secrets of some of Britain's most successful entrepreneurs. My name is Bill Mayer of PrecisionPresentation.com. Today, I'm interviewing Michael Dembinski, Senior Advisor to the BPCC, the British Polish Chamber of Commerce, an expert on Poland's responses to the 2008 financial crisis, Brexit, and the COVID pandemic. He is a son of Bohdan Dembinski, hero of the 63-day 1944 Warsaw Uprising. Bohdan survived the uprising and the war, but his brother Josef, uh, Michael's uncle, sadly died fighting in the uprising and is buried in Warsaw. In 2016, after the death of his wife, Bohdan returned every year to Warsaw from Ealing, where he lived, to visit his brother's grave on the anniversary of the start of the Warsaw Uprising, August the 1st. Crowds would gather to wait for Bohdan, the war hero, queuing up to meet him and interview him. Bohdan Dembinski died on the 29th of October 2019 in Ealing, London. Uh, Michael, as we said, is his proud son. Michael, welcome to PB Link Stories. Hello there, Bill. Michael, your father was a war hero, highly regarded in Poland and beyond. What do you say to those who claim the uprising was a doomed and foolish endeavour? Well, I just, uh, I have no view other than what my father has told me and uh, his experience, uh, firstly, during the Nazi invasion of Poland in September 1939, uh, the years of uh, occupation, uh, the things that he witnessed there, the arbitrary uh, arrests, the roundups um, and the street executions. He took me one day, we were along uh, Novishviata Main Street in uh, Warsaw, and he showed me a, a spot where he was standing on the, the steps of uh, the church, Świętego uh, Jakuba, uh, um, and he was looking down uh, Nowy Świat um, and saw a, a truckload of uh, uh, Polish prisoners, um, young men mainly. Um, truck came to a, a stop. They were all made to get out of the truck and they were just machine gunned to death. Uh, just a mass execution. One of many that happened. That was one that my father happened to, to see. Um, so the way he explains it to me was that view it wasn't a, a calculated decision about whether the Soviets will come, whether the allies, Western allies will support us with parachute drops or whatever. It was a simple act of, of revenge. I think really my father's only sort of moments of real heroism was when the, uh, the, there was the, the, the collapse of the um, attack by his unit, uh, Battalion Odvet. Odvet means revenge. Um, against the um, the SS um, and Gestapo barracks uh, in uh, Colonia Stasica, um just south of uh, the city centre. Um, the, their battalion, essentially, the problem was that they didn't have any weapons. They had literally a handful of pistols and a handful of Molotov cocktails. Um, when the order was given to to start. Uh, my father and another 20 guys uh, were in a house on uh, Ulisa Filtrova, but further down, right down the eastern end of that street. And they were just waiting for someone. Uh, they were in a first floor 
um, room waiting for the order and waiting for, for weapons. None of these came. And some of them took a decision, well, that's it. There's no point carrying on. Let's just go back, you know, leave, leave Warsaw, go to the village, seek safety, security. But my father was one of a handful who decided that they're going to cross the, the, the field, Pole Mokotowskia, the now a park. At the time, it was a huge cabbage patch uh, to get across to the the uh, barricades on the other side where uh, another unit, um, Battalion Golski, uh, was fighting the Germans there. Now, Battalion Golski was much better equipped. They had anti-tank weapons um, and the Germans were rather afraid of that particular unit. But uh, my father um, managed to, to make it through. He was saying that they were doing this crossing at, at night, uh, treading on cabbages, very noisy. There's silence, just the occasional sort of shots of gunfire in the city centre. But, uh, you know, every time he, he trod on a cabbage, he could be heard by the Germans and the burst of machine gun fire sweeping across the top of the cabbage field. They were pressed down to the ground but uh, they managed to get across so my father uh, you know late in life uh, said that he had a very lucky life but he, he didn't really consider himself uh, a hero he didn't uh, um he um the battalion golski they managed to hold the line that the barricades uh, on one side there was the um, Politecnica, the Warsaw Technical University on, on one side of uh, Ulisa of Skiego. Uh, on the other side, um, my father and um, his unit were, were holding that line and that line was never broken. They, they held that line right up to the 63rd day uh, until uh, capitulation. Uh, oh, so, yeah. uh, you know, he said that that was more like uh, accident than uh, heroism uh, right, because okay. the Germans were, were, were worried that uh, Golski was still a, a particularly effective um, unit. They'd knocked out several German tanks. Um, they were um, the Germans, um, the German unit facing them were not a particularly elite unit. So they didn't want to. Uh, get in, engaged. Uh, anyway, that's how my father tells it. Uh, so he spent, uh, um, apart from the, the early days, he spent all of his time in that area around uh, the Polytechnica, the Warsaw Technical mm -hmm. University. Amazing stuff. Michael, you, you have reason to be incredibly proud of your parents. I'm, we've just heard a little bit about your father. Your mother uh, went through hell in a, a Soviet gulag on the journey mm -hmm there in cattle trucks. People just rounded up from mm -hmm. Eastern Poland, put in cattle trucks, sent to the Arctic Circle. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. She survived the Gulag, she survived the journey then to the Middle East. Um, and from mm -hmm. there, your mother and your father went their separate ways and met in England. Uh, now you yourself say that you were born Polish in the UK. How has your upbringing shaped you and your identity? <laughs> it's a very interesting question because uh, my my brother had exactly the same upbringing. Uh, he married an English girl and lives in England. Um, I happened to, um, I mean, we both went to Saturday Polish school. Um, I went right through until A-level. Um, so that's from age five until 18, every single Saturday during term time. Um, when my friends were, you know, either playing football or, you know, ABC minors, cinema, going shopping or whatever, um, I'd be there 
learning about um, Polish uh, history, geography, literature, language, obviously. Uh, very useful skills as it happened Saturday afternoons as Polish scouts, which is pretty much a, a very sort of paramilitary um, experience. Um, you know, many of the sort of the older guys who are running it were, were veterans of the Second World War. Uh, fought at Monte Cassino or fought with the uh, alongside the Eighth Army in, uh, in North Africa. Um, so, um, you know, the drill was uh, was pretty paramilitary. Um, a lot of it, you know, field craft. Uh, um, creeping around in uh, in parks after dark uh, it's great fun actually I really enjoyed it uh, I was uh, there in the, in the scouts from the age of about six or seven of the cub scouts uh, right through to about 16 or so the venture scouts uh, I really enjoyed that um, it, it was good fun um, then you know there was um, Polish church on, on Sunday um, there was a Polish uh, youth club by the uh, by the church um, Polish um, student and graduate uh, association. So you know, through uh, went sort of fairly seamlessly through through that um, upbringing. And um, you know, interestingly enough, my wife was born in Manchester. Both of her parents are also from Poland. So um, my father-in-law fought with the the Polish Navy. It was on the ORP um, Wiskawica, the the destroyer. Uh, he was the uh, artillery officer on that. And uh, my mother-in-law was the um, was um, uh, courier for in the uh, home army, uh, so also fought in the uh, Warsaw uh, uprising. Um, so my wife has a very similar background in terms of Polish Saturday school, um, Polish uh, girl guides, uh, church and uh, associations. Um, but again, uh, her sister happened to um, meet an American guy and they just live in America. Children don't speak Polish. Um, whereas uh, we took a decision in 1997 when the children were still young to, to, to move to Poland. Um, uh, interestingly, again, um, daughter has uh, completed her studies here and is living and, and working in, in uh, between Warsaw and Łódź. Um, whereas uh, our son has decided that he wants to return to the UK. So, um, you know, that, that Polishness seems to be sort of a every other every other person. Okay. Um, it's, it's not, it's, it's not it, so there's an element of nature and an element of nurture. Yeah, that's interesting. The nature of uh, Polishness versus Britishness and what wins out. Um, Michael, can you? We we mentioned that you're senior advisor to the BPCC. Can you tell us a bit about the work of that organisation, please? Well, the BPCC is uh, next year is going to be thirty years old. Uh, it, it was an organisation set up to support British investors as they moved into. The Polish market um, shortly after the political and economic transformation at the beginning of the 1990s. So there was a lot of need um, at the time for, for support as these British companies came in. Um, the whole infrastructure, you know, the lawyers, the accountants, the um, recruitment companies, the, the marketing consultants. There was uh, so much um, that that was what was needed at the time. And also, you know, that element of, of lobbying, getting the message across about the importance of foreign direct investment to the, the Polish economy uh, in terms of creating jobs, in terms of um, spreading best practice and, and know-how. So still, um, you know, all although we're a 
can we consider ourselves to be a, a bilateral chamber? The bulk of our work really is still done around those British investors in Poland. Although the, the situation is, is definitely shifting, we're now seeing um, more and more Polish companies that are interested in investing in the UK. Um, some notable uh, examples here are companies like um, Telefonica Kable that um, invested in uh, a British company called JDR Cables um, 2016. The largest manufacturer of um, those big thick cables that go under water between wind turbine farms offshore uh, and um, uh, the the grid um, on onshore. Um, the other examples uh, are um, the company LPP, um, known by its brand name Reserved as uh, one of Poland's largest uh, clothing retailers. They have their flagship store on Oxford Street in London. Um, then there's plenty of food. Pol the UK, despite Brexit, uh, remains Poland's number two export market for food. Um, so although the UK has, has lost out in importance because of Brexit. It's now fallen to fourth place from second place. The, the food export is still holding up strong. Um, then you've got uh, companies like Inglot, um, Dr. Irena Eris in the uh, world of uh, cosmetics, health and beauty. Um, you have uh, companies, um, well, uh, furniture. Furniture is a massive area of uh, export from Poland to the UK. But again, lots of this is branded uh, IKEA, for example, or, you know, posh German brands, but you know, it's actually made in, in Poland. So one of the things that we're, we're doing, working with Polish exporters to help them through all the, the new red tape, we have a lot of companies who are helping out around Brexit, whether they are, um, you know, tax accountants who can sort out all your customs duties and VAT issues, whether it's someone to help out with um, transit guarantees, um, all the logistics things, you know, customs agents. Uh, there's a vast amount of new work that needs to be done if you're continuing to trade between Poland and the UK. And we have many members who can help out in that area. Excellent. Now, Poland emerged stronger and was affected less than most Western economies, most EU economies from the global financial crash of 2008. It's coping better economically with the COVID mm. pandemic as well. Um, now, you've spoken before about the distinctive character of the Polish people as being uh, partly due to the location of the country, to the west of Eastern Europe and to the east of Western Europe. Geography, history, genetics, what gives Poland the edge? One of my pet theories is about the Industrial Revolution. Um, Britain had the Industrial Revolution towards the end of the 18th century. So you have in the UK families where for 10 generations, people have worked in the factory, in the mills. They've been, they're no, they've not, they've been detached from the land for a long, long time. And my thinking is that if you're a, a smallholder, if you're a peasant farmer, your obligation to your family to feed them, you have to work hard. Um, a couple of years ago, I was driving to a conference in the south of Poland. It was minus 26 outside on the car thermometer. I was driving along um, between Konstantin uh, and uh, Sandomierz, and um, I saw by the side of the road there was uh, an old woman 
walking, leaving a forest and on her bag, a sack of, of firewood. And she was walking across this field towards a little cottage. And it occurred to me at that moment that at minus 26 degrees centigrade, there's no such word as manana. You either collect that firewood or you freeze to death. Um, you know, farmers, they, they plow, they harvest, they sell their crop. And if they don't do that, their family hasn't got what to eat. Um, I remember shortly after we moved to Poland, I went for a um, long country walk with, with our children. And um, we saw this farmyard and on the farm, in the middle of the farmyard was a big table. And on that table was a huge pig lying dead. Um, his throat had been slit and under the, the, the throat, under the, the table was this bucket and it's bleeding into the, the bucket. Uh, and my children were looking at this transfixed, you know, what's going on here? And I was explaining that, you know, the blood, everything, every part of this pig has a value. Um, you make kashanka, um, black pudding from, from the, the, the pig's blood um, by adding uh, oats and barley and seasoning. And the following day at work, I mentioned this to, to my colleagues, Berta and Dorota. I said, you know, we, we saw this scene yesterday and, you know, both of them said, oh, I remember my granddad used to do this, you know. And then it struck me, you know, most Poles are just two generations removed from the land, not 10 generations removed from the land. Yep. And I would argue that early industrialization has created um, a sense of learned dependency that, um, as long as you come in uh, to work at uh, nine o'clock on a Monday morning um, and you work uh, your 40 hour week and you leave on a Friday, you'll get paid. You get your weekly wage. And it was like that for, for many generations in the UK until two things started happening, globalization and IT. They both happened at about the same time. And those factories at the end of the street, um, you know, I went to a state primary school in, in West London. Of the 36 children in my class, only three of us um, passed the 11 plus and got into a grammar school. The rest were condemned to secondary, secondary modern education, which was tailored for the needs of the factory down the end of the road. Yep. Um, and then that factory closed. Um, and, you know, I'd argue that, you know, a lot of Britain's problems um, stem from, from that. The simultaneous appearance of um, the Far East as a, a manufacturing base for the world's production and IT um, cutting out a lot of those uh, manual jobs, making incredible leaps forward in terms of efficiency and productivity. And Poland is still at a, at a relatively early stage here compared to the UK. Um, I think a lot of this is also, you know, sort of coming, stepping out of communism. But um, when friends of mine, when their parents in the UK, when their parents died, they'd leave them a house worth a million pounds. My friends in Poland, when their parents died, they'd leave them enough money to buy a new laptop. So for, you know, for my generation, that difference in, in inherited wealth or potential inherit, potentially inheritable wealth um, has made a big difference. Because if you were, um, you know, my age, but 
growing up in Poland and all of a sudden it's 1990, communism has fallen. Um, you're in your late 20s, early 30s. You know, now is the time that you'll, you either join the rat race, you get that job in the Western corporation, or you set up your own business and you, you work your fingers to the bone because you've got nothing to fall back on. Um, you've got everything to play for. Um, you've got the, the West to catch up with. Um, you want all of these goodies that the, the West has enjoyed. Uh, you know, you want a, a flash car you want a nice big house you want exotic holidays you want all of these wonderful clothes and consumer durables and i would argue that that has really been the driver uh, for the last 30 years i mean uh, it's an important generational shift there as well and looking back at 30 years say um if you look at um um, other economies in france talks about la glorious trant you know the 30 years that they had of uninterrupted growth from the end of the 1940s to the end of the 1970s when um, there was this uh, incredibly steep rise in, in ordinary people's standards of living. Uh, that's, you know, very much what we are seeing here in Poland. Um, but then look at Japan. Uh, 1945, Japan was a, a nuclear waste ground. You know, it was bombed to pieces by the U.S. Air Force. Um, by 1990, it was, you know, competing there with the United States as, you know, one of the wel wealthiest nations uh, on earth in terms of GDP per capita. Um, and then all of a sudden, that Japanese drive just petered out. And now you think about your, your sort of stereotype of uh, a Japanese person is, uh, you know, a, a, a young man in his... 30s who lives at home with his parents reading manga comics and you know not really having the sort of the, the drive to, to get on in life you know mm -hmm. um and and yet that post-war generation that created um an incredible economy through just sheer hard work but they burnt themselves out and another generation came along and said well we don't want to follow in the footsteps of our parents we don't want to burn ourselves out you know life is too precious and, and beautiful let's uh, you know sniff the flowers and discuss poetry um and if, poland if, is if, is, if is you can not, do it and get away with it go for it uh, poland is not yet in the, the the flower sniffing and poetry discussion stage but it, it will there will come a, a time and you know it's a natural part of human uh, evolution of human progress that um, one generation can can step back and say well we no longer have to right. work as hard as our parents but i don't think we're there yet thanks very much michael now we come to the last question the question that we ask everybody on uh, pb link stories what is the secret of business I think the secret of business is not to be greedy. Um, it's not to be too pushy. It's not to sell things to people that they don't need and can't afford. I think part of the, the biggest problem facing mankind, uh, which is climate change, part of it is the fact that we've got nearly 8 billion people on this planet, of whom 2 billion are you know, well off. And it's those two billion who say, I want um, a bigger car. Um, you know, I want um, a, a, an even more exotic holiday. And they are being pandered to by businesses who can see that, you know, here's a bunch of suckers. We can sell them a 
you know, a V8 powered SUV that weighs two and a half tons just to drag their themselves into the city centre and back home into the supermarket. Um, they don't need that car, but that car is causing a vast amount of harm to the planet. Um, and I think in, in general, there's, there's so much, you know, people do have needs. People have needs that businesses genuinely do cater for. But when those needs, when you tip over the barrier between a need and a want, when you tip the barrier between living comfortably, which everyone has a right to live in comfortably, not to live in discomfort, but then living in luxury. Um, and, you know, much of that is created by um, businesses, short-term desire for, for, for gain. I think, you know, greed and, and short-termism um, are, you know, a bad thing. Now, if so, the su secret of success in business is, is listening, genuinely wanting to know what your customer really wants what they really need what their need is they everyone has needs everything everyone has things that they need solving that there is a potential solution um to to people be it in manufactured products or or, or in services uh, we we need things um and the secret of success in business is that person who listens who says, right, okay, I can see that there is a, a, a problem here. Let's see if we can solve it. And I think that part of the huge advance that we've seen in, in the world, in the global economy, really, driven by IT, has been around this. It's been um, new uh, solutions to genuine uh, human problems. I mean, much of this now driven by, you know, apps. I mean, it's just amazing what you can get from a, a telephone loaded with, with apps. It's, uh, uh, you know, sort of a, a life-enhancing thing. Um, and it's really, it's those businesses that, that, you know, had the vision to create this whole infrastructure um, that have done, have immensely um, helped uh, society. But it is, you know, coming back to the, the I, I think that, you know, that, that key thing is to understand your, your client, understand what they, what they really need and not just make a fast buck from them, but uh, to, you know, engage in a, a long-term, lifelong uh, relationship with your client based on shared values, shared, you know, shared brands. I, you know, I think about, the, the things uh, around, yeah, you know, here, here is one. It's a very good example. This is uh, um, my Nikon lens that I bought uh, back in the 1980s, and um, I still use Nikon. My, you know, my cameras are, are Nikon cameras. Uh, I love the brand. Um, I, you know, I, I feel that um, Nikon is a, a brand that um, understands me and, uh, and my requirements in uh, photography. Um Levi's jeans. I, I only wear Levi's jeans. I don't wear jeans by anybody else. Uh, so, and it's a you know a, a lifelong thing that uh, if you understand um, and, and prepared to listen to your your client, your customer, um, you you build that lifelong value. Fantastic. Don't be greedy. Uh, listen and have vision and uh, have vision to actually yeah. meet the needs of your customers and have a long-term vision build yes. relationships with your customers and from that of course comes quality if you want a long-term relationship with your customers then you need to provide quality because otherwise they're going to leave you absolutely words to live by certainly words to run mm -hmm. your business by um 
Michael, thanks very much for everything uh, you've you've yeah, thanks, today. Yeah, thanks, It's a real pleasure. A real, uh, real pleasure to, to have a chat like this. So, uh, yeah, um, anytime yeah. you want to do another one, um, always up for it. Fantastic. And to our listeners, be sure to subscribe to PB Link Stories to listen as we hunt down inspiring entrepreneurs to find out the secret of business. Join us at our next event and engage with the business community. 